So this is just some research to give you a sense of when it comes to global warming, where does America stand? And I think one nice, pretty simple way to think about it is that there's, there's roughly six Americas when it comes to climate change. It's just some survey work that's been going on since, I think, about 2008. And, and every few months, they just take a, a survey to see how these, how these different groupings have changed. And so, as you can see, it runs from the alarmed to the concerned to the, what does the yellow one say? I can't read it. Thank you. <laughs> the disengaged, the doubtful, and the dismissive. Thank you. Um, and you know, from a social science standpoint, we think of these two guys on, on either end. We think of those extremes as the issue public. These are the folks that tend to call their elected officials and say, you need to care about this issue, or if you do anything for climate change, you're never going to get my vote again. So these folks on the ends are, are the ones who are really engaged in, in the issue. So how do we talk about climate change? How do we really work through the point to where we're convinced that this is as urgent as a threat as, as scientists, as climate scientists tell us it is? So basically, there's four key things that we need to talk about when we talk about this issue. One is we need to work through how scientists actually know that it's real, that there is indeed this thing called global warming, where the planet is warming up. Second, we actually have to prove to ourselves that we know that there is a human contribution. That part is really critical, because if, if we think it's strictly part of a natural cycle, then why do anything differently, right? We're, just, we're in an adaptive landscape as it is. This, this question is really important to answer and to answer solidly. Third, you know, we have to really work through why this is considered the threat that it is. And then finally, you can't talk about a problem unless you talk about solutions. So really, I think, and scientists haven't done a good job across the board with, with these things, but specifically, we need to just work through the solutions and, and cost them out and, and just have a pragmatic, realistic discussion um, on all, all fronts. So I just want to work through um, those, those areas. And I, I like to start with this quote by Mark Twain, because when I was at the Weather Channel, people just assumed that I was a meteorologist. And so I was like, well, you know, you got to understand that what I do is, is actually climatology. And, you know, and, and interestingly enough, you know, climate really is this statistical construct, right? It is the average of weather over time. So you know, in the same way that climate change just kind of feels like this, this vague threat that we can't process very well, climate in and of itself is this strange thing that, that can be difficult to process. Although in a room like this one, I mean, I know that, that you guys have a really intuitive feel for the subject, but um, Mark Twain said it well. Climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And so now, you know, the question really is what happens when you no longer expect what you used to, right, in this, in this new normal that we're moving into? So what does global warming look like? This is a NASA plot that basically takes us through the observational data record of temperatures. It's counting through time. And yellow, red is warm, blue is cool. And really, the takeaway is that global warming is messy. This, this temperature trend that we talk about, it's not a simple, linear, uniform thing. It changes through time. But as you can see, as we move forward in time, the signal gets stronger and stronger. So we expect natural variability. We expect to see patterns of cooling and warming, both spatially and over time. But we expect there to be this dominant warming signal. So 
you know, I always think back, because when I, when I first got my PhD, and, and Roberto was talking about my time at the IRI, I worked on El Nino. I worked on long-range climate forecasting to be used in the hydropower sector. And we really just wanted to use seasonal to interannual forecasts and, and incorporate them so that we could begin to think on these longer timescales, right? Because the longer timescale you're looking out, if we could give someone a Sandy forecast that was three, three months out, I think we could have done a whole lot better job than even with that four-day forecast. But so this is this is the way we're thinking about it. How do we really give us all of the time that we need to prepare for these things? So, you know, just to put this in perspective, okay, all 12 years of the 21st century rank among the 14 warmest on record. So you know, if you're flipping coins, you wouldn't really expect to, to run heads uh, so consistently. And then also from this standpoint of of comparisons to the past. Um, I think it's really important to just say that the rate of change is what we're talking about. That yes, we expect there to be variability within the system, but we do not expect to see it at the rate of change that we're seeing it. So, so this issue, this, this, this thing that we call global warming, it's happening on a timescale that Mother Nature herself doesn't operate on. And you know, when I was in graduate school, I thought the nicest way that I heard it described was to think of climate as this orchestra, right? Where you've got all of these different instruments playing. You've got the atmosphere, you've got the ocean, you've got the land surface, you've got ice sheets, you've got feedbacks, things like El Nino, things like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation and the Arctic Oscillation that, that operate on these different timescales. But then in the background now, as part of this orchestra, we have this steady drumbeat of warming that is, that is essentially our contribution to the climate system. And interestingly enough, the best science that we have right now tells us that that drumbeat is going to get louder and louder as we move through time. Now, at the same time, all of the observed data that I'm going to show you you know, there's a, there's a certain part of me that's like, it's not super impressive, right? The stuff that we can measure right now, it's impressive that we can measure it. But the impacts are really even further in the pipeline. I mean, are we already experiencing climate change? Yes, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg. And the reason why, you know, I think it's really fair to call climate change this, this perfect threat or this, this great procrastination problem is that our rational brains tell us that we should just wait and see how bad it gets before we do something, when in fact, it's critical that we rely on the data and the models to act before we see it. This is, this is the irony, if you will, of climate change. You can't wait until you see it. You've really got to act in advance. So how do we know it's us? Uh, I'm sure uh, many of you have, have heard of, of David Keeling and the, the curve from Mauna Loa that tracks CO2 over time. You know, I think we show this curve a lot. We actually just recently hit 400 parts per million, which conservatively we know we haven't seen 400 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere for at least 800,000 years, possibly as many as 15 million years. Um, the research is, is sort of still slightly broad on those error bars. But we haven't been at 400 ppm in a really, really long time. But the interesting thing that Keeling did was, aside from just track carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, this kind of atmospheric breathalyzer, if you will, was that he was also able to chemically fingerprint that carbon dioxide. And the reason why he was able to do that was because depending on where that CO2 molecule comes from, it has a different chemical fingerprint, right? So there's three isotopes of carbon, three flavors of carbon, if you will, C12, C13, and C14. Fossil fuels, because they're so old, are basically depleted in 
the radiocarbons in the C14 and then C13, right? So basically Keeling said, you know what, we can actually fingerprint these CO2 molecules because fossil fuel has a specific signature. Based on that, he was able to say that roughly one out of every four CO2 molecules out there today was put there by us. Now that said, there's other multiple pathways of evidence that, that lead us to this, yes, humans are playing a role component. We use models to do it. We use basically just the physics of the vertical fingerprint of the atmosphere. There's, there's a couple of different ways that, that, that prove this as well, but, but I think Keeling had a really nice, simple way of testing it. So then there's the it's a threat part, right? So I think that has been an underlying part of the discussion over the past two days, just from the standpoint of, okay, you know, we've been dealing with this awful drought in 2012, um, you know, and, and here I am, the person who's really interested in forecasts, saying that we were unable, we were lousy at being able to forecast the 2012 drought in advance. Now, Mark will tell you that, that we saw the beginnings of the drought actually in 2010 because the winter itself was not, was not cold enough, if you will, to sort of recharge soil moisture or, or, or get us to the place where we needed to be come spring. But you know, the flash drought that ensued, ideally, you know, in, in early March, when everyone was feeling incredibly hopeful about the spring planting season, it would have been really nice if scientists like me could have said, you know what, right now the forecast models are telling us that, uh, that, that come June, we're gonna see some, some really, some really fast-acting drought take shape. I mean, this is obviously the direction that we wanna go in. And you know, interestingly, some colleagues at, at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory um, in Princeton actually did forecast, you know, forecast that drought. Now, what they're trying to do right now is figure out if they were just lucky or if they knew something, right? So this is where we are with respect to drought forecasting. But Mark, I don't know if I've actually had the chance to tell you this, but interestingly enough, their model got thrown out of, of, um, of the ensembles because it just, it was an outlier, right? So this is what we're dealing with. I mean, how do we, how do we incorporate the vastness of the climate system? I mean, as tough as it is to give you a four-day track forecast for Hurricane Sandy, it's even harder to do it on these longer timescales for these other phenomena. So, you know, this is really the direction that the science is going in, and, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we can, we can give you a three-month lead time. But I just want to give you kind of a picture of the state of the science on on changes in extremes, what we call like the trends in extremes. And this is a plot that on, on the x-axis basically has data quality, right? You know, we can't talk about anything unless we have high quality data. So basically as you move down, it's a, it's a sign that our data quality is higher. And then similarly with just understanding the physical mechanisms, the dynamics, those are the two, the two parameters that you need to really if you will, forecast something. And so what you can see here is that, you know, when it comes to tornadoes, for example, and how a warmer world might impact them, or even how, you know, large-scale climate fluctuations, these kind of decadal patterns that I mentioned, how they would affect it, we know very, very little. There's just, there's not a whole lot you can say about tornadoes because, you know, Doppler didn't come online until the 70s. We just, we don't have enough data to know very much about tornadoes. But when it comes to heat waves, droughts, precip, we actually have high quality data at fine enough resolution and a good physical understanding to be able to talk about 
how the statistics of these extremes will change moving forward. So, um, and I'll, I'll allude to that a little bit, but uh, just wanted to, to give a shout out to the National Climate Assessment. I know Rosina mentioned it yesterday, but this is really just, it's, it's the state of, of the science when it comes to impacts in the US. It's publicly available now. The final document, I guess, will land on people's desks in March of 2014, but you can access it right now. And this is really just to say that here within the US, this is the signature, if you will, of global warming. And, and as you can see, it's, it's not super consistent, right? There's what we call the southeast warming hole. Um, and then basically averaged across the US, we've got about a one and a half degree warming signal. But like I said, there is variability within that. So that's the observations with respect to just annual temperature. It's also really interesting to begin to look at extremes. and. Actually, this started when I was at the Weather Channel. There was a, um, a forecaster there by the name of Guy Walton who was just really fascinated by record highs and record lows. And he, he, he was a, a wonderful hardcore weather weenie. He was just tracking record highs and record lows. He had them going back for a very long time. He's like, you know what? I see some kind of a trend here. I see that we're, we're just seeing more record highs than we used to. And so he, he partnered with some folks at NCAR and this is the analysis that they came up with, basically. And that is, you know, when you look back in the 1950s, you see a one-to-one -one correlation between record highs and record lows. You know, and I'll just say that from the standpoint of a natural system, you know, when you're just flipping coins, heads and tails, you pretty much expect to see for every record high, you get a record low. As you move forward through time, you can see that today we see roughly two record highs for each record low. And the interesting thing about this study, and this gets back to my, my earlier point, which is, You've really got to look longer term to get the sense of where we're headed. So in this study, they ran the models out longer. What they found was that by the 2050s, we'll be seeing roughly 20 record highs for each record low. And by the end of the century, we're going to see roughly 50 record highs for each record low. So, so again, this is just to give you the sense. This is like the track forecast for where we're going. Now, I said we also have a pretty good dynamical understanding of rainfall. This is observed data from the 1950s onward, basically looking at changes in what we call heavy rainfall events. So a lot of rain coming down in a short period of time. They break it down by region, and you can nicely see that there is a trend towards heavier rainfall, especially in the Northeast. And so what this means is that when it rains, it rains heavier. And on the flip side, you tend to see longer spells in between. And obviously, when it comes to the US Southwest and when it comes to drought, that is not the kind of combination that you want to see. You know, long stretches in between rain and then really heavy rains that, that don't give you the kind of replenishment that you need. So I know that Rosina alluded to this yesterday, but this is really just, I think, one way of, of giving you a sense of, of what the science is trying to do and, and how the science can really help us see what climate change looks like. And that was this, what started out as a research study that attempted to answer the question, to what extent did global warming influence the heat wave of 2003 in Europe? You know, and, and we often, I mean, we ask that question all the time now. Did global warming play a role? And it, you know, we can ask it very cavalierly, but the answer is very, very difficult. Or I should say the meaningful answer is very difficult. I mean, the easy answer is, look, the planet's about a degree and a half warmer than it used to be, so 
this is fundamentally a different climate. But to actually be able to look at the specific event and, if you will, do an autopsy on that event, that's hard. And that takes some serious number crunching. But these guys um, at the UK Met Office actually did that. And what they found was that human influence roughly doubled the likelihood of that heat wave happening. And that's kind of the way you got to think of these extremes is that, yeah, Mother Nature is still strong. There is still a ton of natural climate variability in the system. But you know, this additional warming is just pushing us in the direction of certain outcomes. And you know, with respect to that heat wave, that was about as much of a push as it gave at that time. Again, they, they ran those models further, further forward. And what they found was that by 2040, you're seeing the European heat wave every other year. And as Rosina said yesterday, by 2070, that heat wave becomes a relatively cool summer, right? So this is, this is where we're headed. Okay, so now you know, we can rewrite Mark Twain's quote. Miles Allen, a, uh, a, a scientist at Oxford, did that. And he says, okay, so now climate is what you affect and weather is what gets you. Okay, so let's just talk about the future briefly. Um, how much time do I have? We're, we're past, okay, we've gotten to a little bit, okay. Okay, so, and you know, not to be very depressing, like, I know that I'm the lunchtime talk, so this should be a little bit more fun than some of the other talks. <laughs> um, so I wanna, I wanna have like a brief moment of, um, of entertainment and, and just think about this question of how do we envision and talk about the future. Cone collected, permission slip signed. Now time for a break. A little social studies. <laughs> what will Springfield be like in 50 years? Let's see what the computer says. That's horrible. What else? Oh my god. It just gets worse and worse! And now, Ralph Wiggum will read his essay on Springfield in 50 years. <clears throat> in 50 years, the vacuum cleaner will be quiet and not scary. Next we have Lisa Simpson. Oh, Ralph, how I envy your optimism. There is no Springfield 50 years in the future. With global warming trapping the CO2 inside our poisonous atmosphere, our superheated oceans will rise, drowning our lowlands, leaving what's left of humanity baking in deserts that once fed the world. And in the new Nineveh, darkness falls. So it is always my fear that I sound like Lisa Simpson. Um, so hopefully we'll get to a point where, you know, it's just like, look, this is, this is a challenge and, and this is something that we need to deal with. So, okay, what does the future look like? This is an NCAR model. Um, it's one of many models that's run. And basically what it shows us is that by the end of the century, you know, business as usual, by the end of the century, we're talking about a roughly 10 degree warming. Um, both kind of globally, and, and that signal is, is about as consistent for the U.S. as well. So, you know, from a climate perspective, that, that is a radically different climate to have reached in only 100 years. I mean, and that's, I mean, I think in a way that's, that's the punchline. Like, we're headed towards a climate that usually it takes about 1,000 years to get to. 
So during the last ice age, it was roughly nine or 10 degrees colder. And, and that was a process that was naturally driven, but we had, we had time to prepare, right? So with this, we're talking about rapid change, at least from an ecosystem standpoint, um, over a really quick period of time. So, so that's kind of what we're, we're thinking we're headed towards. And to just break that down a little bit, you know, as you can tell, I, I am a strong, I, I just, I, I see the value so much in, in a weather forecast. I mean, you know, being at the Weather Channel for as long as I was, just being able to see how, how forecasts can, can, you know, they could save a life. You know, these, these, this is an immense thing that science does for us. But a weather forecast is inherently different from a climate forecast in the sense that a weather forecast is, it's strictly defense for the most part. I mean, track forecast for Sandy, you got four days. I mean, basically you're figuring out, okay, what am I taking with me um, if I'm leaving? Or am I sheltering in place? I mean, who am I calling? What, you know, what, what are the basic things that I can do in, in this four day time period? Now, a climate forecast, obviously, we're talking you know, out several decades. Um, I mean, and for someone like me, a climate forecast is anything that stretches from three months out to you know, the end of the century, essentially, because we want to be able to predict on all of those timescales. But the difference when it comes to a forecast for the middle and the end of the century is that we are actually part of that forecast. I mean, can we influence the jet stream you know, over the course of a few days? Not, not in any meaningful way when it comes to something like an extreme that, that we're forecasting on this, this day-long time scale. But you know, on something that goes out longer time scales, we're factored into the model, essentially. The way we choose to you know, basically build a, a, an energy portfolio is part of that forecast. So CO2 emissions, um, essentially, are, are, are what gets built into the model. So here's CO2 emissions going up through time. Today, you know, we, you know, we see some variability. Some years are steeper than others. Um, overall, we release about 30 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. That's, that's where we're at right now. So keep in mind this red dot here. Now, when we do a climate model, we basically offer up many, many different scenarios for the human component of the problem, right? If you know the physics of the, of the climate system, you know, the way the atmosphere behaves, the way the oceans behave, you know, that stuff is, is, is all of the differential equations that we need to build a model. The human stuff is, is understandably messier. So you've got all of these different ranges here of various, basically, human futures, if you will. This is what we would call the business as usual future. And you know, I'll just point out that where we're at right now is actually slightly above this business as usual or, or worst case scenario, if you will. So you know, right now, we're, we're very much on this 7 to 11 degree trajectory. And, and so the question is, is that where we really want to be? You know, with all of the additional risks that that pushes onto the system, is that really where we want to be? So, you know, in terms of, of, of fixing it, that gives us then two options, right? We've got the mitigate, get the CO2 out of the atmosphere in, in different ways. Um, and and those, are, those are challenging questions. There's no simple, easy solutions. And then there's the, we gotta, we, we've got to work on our infrastructure. I mean, you could argue that the infrastructure in our country is, is already, um, Old. I mean, we've, we've got you know 50s and 60s infrastructure for power and and 
um, and water in, in many places. And, and we just, you know, we really need to think about how to adapt that infrastructure that recognizes that, that the landscape is changing, if you will. So I know you guys have been focused a lot on water. So I thought I would talk very briefly about energy and the fact that, as you guys know, water and energy are very tightly connected. Um, but here, right now, we use, you know, in, in the 2000s, we're basically using about 15 trillion watts of energy globally at any given time. And, you know, forecasts basically say it's going to double by the middle of the century. So how are we going to not just provide water, but how are we going to provide power for our global economy? Um, you know, I think this is just presenting the options, if you will, and, and how much is available from each of these energy sources. And you know, the reason why we think of solar as a tremendous opportunity is just simply the bang for the buck, if you will, that, that you can get. Um, but again, you know, we, we have to think about the infrastructure that we have already built into place. And we have to think about you know, building this renewables portfolio, this energy portfolio, in such a way that, that we really are, we, we are robust. And we don't suffer from the kinds of, of, you know, of extremes that we've seen in the past. So you know, I just want to basically show, say, if you will, the natural capital that, that we have here in the US. I was always really amazed, because when I was at the Weather Channel, we focused so much on the bad end of weather. Understandably, right? You know, we all know where Tornado Alley is. We know, we know where hurricanes tend to make landfall. But we, you know, we don't necessarily talk a lot about the fact that we have this tremendous wind belt through the center of the country, tremendous natural capital. And you, know, you look at a place like Germany, which is now the leading solar market, they get less sun than Seattle, right? And so they look at it from you know, building resilience in by having this, this renewables portfolio that, just, that, that gives them greater leeway. And you know, I think you can just look at it from the fact that there's, there is tremendous natural capacity here. You know, and, it, and it's not to say that, that the choices are super easy, but it's to say that there's, there's resources there that, that we can begin to use um, on a number of different fronts. Now, just to give you a comparison, uh, right now, like I said, 30 billion tons a year, uh, 30, 30 billion tons of CO2 per year. China is currently the top, top emitter. US comes in second. Um, and then, you know, as, as we know, developing countries are coming online. Um, their economies are growing. And, and that will go hand in hand with greater CO2 emissions. Now, from a per capita standpoint, what does that look like? Um, Basically, the U.S. is per capita the number one emitter. It, each of us, about 20 tons of CO2. And despite the fact that China is in first place when it comes to per capita emissions, they're about seven tons. So just to give you some, some sense of, of where, where it falls kind of on, a, on an individual level. So from the standpoint of we can fix it, right now I think there's four key areas that folks um, have recommended that, that we focus on. One is CO2 standards. Oops. One is CO2 standards for existing power plants. The other is actually focusing on non-energy sources, so focusing on things like refrigerants. Um, there are other greenhouse gases out there besides CO2 that, that we should look at. Um, third is, is actually focusing on just capping methane emissions, making sure that, that the pipes that are transporting natural gas are, are secure and that we're not leaking methane. And then finally, energy efficiency. I mean, we, we talked about energy efficiency from the water standpoint. Um, you know, it's really, it's this low-hanging fruit that there's a tremendous amount that, that we can do. 
And then I just, as an engineer, want to talk about adaptation because, uh, you know, to me it's really fascinating to think about how do we build resilience into the system? How do we think about our infrastructure? How do we think about the fact that we're going to be seeing more of these different types of extremes? And I, I start with this picture from the Netherlands. There was a terrible flood in the Netherlands in 1953. And you know, it, it highlights sort of this question of values that we're going to have to deal with. Um, you know, as we move forward on the East Coast, rebuilding after Sandy, how we have lessons learned from the 2012 drought moving forward, you know, how do we really build resilience into the system? So in the case of the Netherlands, within 30 days of this terrible flood, the Dutch government announced that they were going to have this, this is the, the 1950s, a $3 billion 30-year plan called the Delta Plan. And they decided that they were going to build Dutch infrastructure to withstand a 1 in 10,000 year event from the sea. Now, Sandy was technically a one in 700 year event. And, and you know, on the East Coast, there's been tons of discussion, like, you know, how much money do we want to spend on these rare events? And I think this is part of, of what we need to grapple with. You know, do we need to build to a one in 10,000 year standard? Probably not. Two thirds of the Netherlands sits at or below sea level. You know, so it's probably not the right choice for us. But how do we want to rebuild our infrastructure in such a way that you know, we don't have folks rebuilding their homes every three or four years, right? I mean, this is what we want to avoid. We want to be able to build resilience into the long term. And you know, to get back to this theme of Sandy, here's the storm surge. And this is the, the storm surge during Sandy. And this is really just to say, look, this is the amount of sea level rise that is, that is embedded into that storm surge. And because of the precipitation connection, we know that we're going to see more heavy rainfall events. So, you know, more nor'easters that could dump more rainfall. So coastal storm surge is, you know, is the kind of threat that we expect to see more of. I mean, some would say that the one in 100-year flood right now is actually a one in 70 or one in 80-year flood. So the statistics of these events are going to change. But I wanted to show you from the values component a map of the five boroughs. So here in green, is where the historic wetlands were, okay? I'm gonna overlay that now. In blue, those were the evacuation zones during Sandy. So you can see that we had people in, in harm's way. We had people in places that we knew historically were quite vulnerable. So this is a values decision. Moving forward, what do we do? You know, and, and as sociologists will say, disasters discriminate. They discriminate against you know, the poor, the elderly folks that don't have that, that resilient infrastructure in place. So how do, we, how do we think about ways to really decrease vulnerability? Okay, and that's, you know, and I'll, and I'll just say that that is really the discussion that's going on um, as we speak with respect to Sandy. You know, do we, do we encourage people to rebuild in places that have lost their homes? Do we incentivize? I mean, really it comes down to how do we make risks transparent so that we can really see them and act upon them. Um, and, and how do we have policies in place? You know, the National Flood Insurance Program is a great example of a completely unsustainable policy that doesn't encourage good decision making. So how do we really make sure that, that we do this right? So I will just end with a quote by one of my favorite scientists, um, actually a gentleman who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for his discovery of the ozone hole. And you know, he said it better than I could, which is, what's the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if in the end all we're willing to do is stand around and wait for them to come true? So I'm going to end it there. And uh, 
that cartoon just cracked me up. Um, and if we have time, I'll, I'll take questions. If I didn't, okay, great. Thank you. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. In fact, there's mics right up here. So if anyone has any questions, just come on up. We've got, you know, we've got ten minutes before lunch ends. And yes. Left hand side. That's my cue to tell them to turn that mic on. Uh, so my, uh, you know, in recent days we've heard an awful lot about how the temperature in the Earth hasn't increased for five years or six years or ten years or whatever the number is. And uh, actually, we could see that yesterday uh, in the data that, uh, uh, what was her name? Rosina. Rosina yeah. showed us. You could see how the actual year interannual variability was kind of leveling off for a while, but the trend line was increasing. Yeah. So my question is, uh, as a climate scientist, what are the explanations for that leveling off in the interannual variability? Mm -hmm. It's such a great question, um, and, and you know, I want to, I need to talk even more about that, and, and at some point, I, I actually want to write about it. But so right now, and, and this will be part of, of the next round of the IPCC that we see. So as I've kind of alluded to, we have been modeling out towards the middle and the end of the century, while at the same time, my colleagues within the scientific, in the, within the climate science community, have been actively engaged with trying to understand the dynamics of these different oscillations. and. Basically, I think we've done a terrible job of communicating that, look, there is this long-term trend in place, but there is a ton of natural variability in the system. And I was just talking to a colleague um, at NCAR that has done a lot of the work on looking at the, the recent cooling, if you will, right? So one of the big reasons was that in 97, 98, we had this huge El Nino, and El Nino basically just boosts global temperature. So the El Nino fades, and we kind of go back down to you know, the, the other state, if you will, if you think of the three phases of, of, you know, El Nino, La Nina, and neutral, right? So that boost was gone. But there is a decadal pattern that's centered around the Pacific. Jerry calls it the IPO, not to be confused with initial public offering, but interdecadal Pacific oscillation. And so it appears that basically the warming is being subducted into the deep ocean. So the warming is still there. It's just how the planet begins to to, to deal it out, essentially. So the IPO is one of the big signals that we're seeing in play, and it's, it's strong enough to, to actually affect the temperature trend on these global timescales. So you know, I, think it, I think the important takeaway is to expect variability. And we want to be able to predict that variability, because that variability drove a large part of the 2012 drought. Um, but also expect there to be this, this steady increasing trend in the background. I mean, that, that's about as good of a forecast as, as you can get. We know that that background trend is going to continue. Yes. Right side, please. My question is that when it gets bad enough, when do the insurance companies weigh in and say, we're just not going to pay that, and then that forces some of the change? Yeah. I, you know, and I think, I think as we discussed this morning, you know, in terms of the connectivity that's needed to build resilience in, you know, and the fact that really because these problems are so massive and so completely interconnected, we really need to work on bridging people and bringing them together. I actually just came from a conference where Swiss Re and Munich Re, the big reinsurers, were there. And I think it's actually important to distinguish between the reinsurers and the insurers. 
there are insurers there as well. Now, the reinsurers have a little bit more flexibility in terms of pricing, and so for them, they can realize this externality, if you will. The insurers, in the same way that the National Flood Insurance Program is not very good at making the variability of risks transparent, the insurers are kind of, they're locked. And so I think this is gonna be one of the policy discussions that we need to have play out because we need to encourage and incentivize smart decision making. So, you know, right now I think that that discussion is very active, um, but, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's in progress, if you will. Any other questions? Thank you very much. <laughs>